God, when he removes our sin, he removes it as far as the east is from the west. It is God who is for us. So who is it that condemns us? Oh, we condemn ourselves. Can't get over it. Can't stop thinking about that sin from so many years ago. And every time we go to God for the upteenth time to ask him to take away, to forgive, to forget that sin that still mires us down, God says back to you, I don't know what you're talking about. I've got the book of life right here and there's no record of it. He keeps no record of wrongs. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. The fruit of the Spirit is love. My dearest Jimmy, no words could express the great unhappiness that I've felt since breaking off our engagement. I've had a change of heart. Please take me back. No one could ever take your place in my heart. I love you. I love you. I love you. Forever, Marie. Oh, and P.S. Congratulations on winning the state lottery. (laughs) You know, loving is easy when the person you're loving provides everything you could ever want or need. And loving God is like that. Have you ever noticed that God is described in lots of ways? He's holy, he's just, he's forgiving. But in 1 John, he is defined. In chapter 4, it says, let's love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. And he that doesn't love doesn't know God. For God is love. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave himself to die for us. Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person or for a good person. Some might dare to die, says Paul in Romans. But God commends, he shows, he displays his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See what manner of love the Father has for us, that we are called children of God, and that is what we are. This is why, this is why inspiration says that God is love. It was Karl Barth who suggested that every time you read your New Testament and you see the word love, you can insert the name Jesus in that spot. Now, I told you this morning that the theme of every book of the Bible, the theme of every passage of Scripture, and the theme of every sermon and every story is Jesus Christ. But it's also true that the theme of every sermon and the heart of every story is the love. 
You all know which chapter in the Bible comes to mind when you're talking about love. 1 Corinthians 13. And you start reading through it. And you can't help but think about God. Love is patient and kind. When the people in the wilderness were as dumb as a post, and they kept saying no to a God that wanted to give and take care of them, God still gave all that they needed, and they couldn't see it. It didn't register. Yet God continued to be patient and kind. Even in captivity, the people of God called out to a God who is patient and kind, and God brought them back out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of the Assyrians, out of the land of the Babylonians. And ultimately, I love the way the message translation puts it in Romans 6 in that baptism passage. Out of the land where sin was sovereign and into the land of grace. Titus chapter 3 says we spent years, who knows how many years, in vanity and pride. And then he introduces the theme of grace with these words. But when the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us. Oh, yes, God is patient and kind. Just look at Jesus Christ. After talking about what love is, the next thing in 1 Corinthians is what love is not. It is not easily angered. He hung there on the cross and we just hurled insults at him. We treated him worse than a criminal. As the angry mob called down generational blame in their thirst for blood. And what did Jesus do? He was moved to pity. And he cried out to his father, Father, forgive them. Please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Love is not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. When it comes to grand concepts, isn't it great when you can get a picture that's worth a thousand words? Try this one on for size. It's in the Psalms. God, when he removes our sin, he removes it as far as the east is from the west. It is God who is for us. So who is it that condemns us? Oh, we condemn ourselves. Can't get over it. Can't stop thinking about that sin from so many years ago. And every time we go to God for the upteenth time to ask him to take away, to forgive, to forget that sin that still mires us down. God says back to you, I don't know what you're talking about. I've got the book of life right here and there's no record of it. He keeps no record of wrongs. Do you want to know more about my God? He always protects our shield and defender, the ancient of days. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we put our trust in the Lord, our God. For God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He always protects, always hopes. That's a good one. It's It's crazy enough that we are able to believe and hope in God. But did you know that God believes in you? That he has confidence in you? Confident enough to put his spirit in you. 
Have you ever invested lots and lots of time and money and sweat into something like a a boat or a car or you name it, and it's so precious to you, you wouldn't dare give the keys over to your 14-year-old son? God says, this is the holiest thing I've got, and I want you to have it and go anywhere in the world with it. Oh, and by the way, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. Twice in the New Testament, the Spirit's called the Spirit of Jesus. And that's why John says that if God's Spirit's in you, guess what? The Father and the Son, they come along too. In fact, the triune God makes His home within you. You trust my Son, says the Father. I trust you with my own spirit. In fact, we're going to come to you and make our home with you. Love never fails. Let me tell you something. Of course it does. Love fails all the time. I see it happen every day. Because every other kind of love fails. Everyone and everything in this world has the potential of letting you down. But Jesus never fails. Always comes through. Always delivers. And that's why he ought to be your one true love. So with the Spirit of God living within you, both securing you and empowering you, he begins to cultivate his fruit within you. The fruit that the Spirit gives is love. The first and greatest commandment, says our God, is to love him with all you got. Well, who wouldn't? I mean, the only perfect love in the world who gives you everything you could ever possibly want or need and constantly does it and didn't even have to. Who couldn't love someone like that? Well, I'm not finished, says God. I want you to love your neighbor. It's in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18, and of course, it's in the New Testament. And we say back to God, are you serious? Have you met my neighbor? I mean, that person's not always faithful to me. Sometimes, sometimes all they ever want to do is bring up the same old fights and they really get on my nerves. Love my neighbor? In Leviticus, he's talking about your fellow called by God Israelite. Now that's already a tall order. I'm not finished, says God. I want you to love your enemies. Our Lord tells the story of a Samaritan. Oh, Israelites had all kinds of stories about Samaritans, but none of them ended with a good Samaritan. None of them ended with go and be like him. Jesus gets up on a mountain and he gives the greatest sermon in the history of the world. And in that sermon, he says... Pray for those who persecute you and do good to those who hate you. If you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? Love your enemies. And we start saying to ourselves, okay, this this is going to take a lifetime. Oh, I'm not finished yet, says God. I want you to love your enemies like you love yourself. And I want you to put them before yourself. We say, that's impossible. And he says, I'm not finished yet. God says, here's a rule of thumb. 
mark this down. In fact, this is my standard. How you love your neighbor, the kind ones, the indifferent ones, the bad ones, is how you treat me. In Matthew 25, we're introduced to a judgment day scene. Now, I know there are other judgment day scenes in the Bible. You take them all in to get a full, well-rounded picture. But Matthew's got a point to make, so let's let Matthew make his point. In this judgment scene, there's only one criteria at judgment. Where were you, says Jesus, when I was cold and naked, hungry and hurting? Well, Jesus, I I was coming home from worship, and I saw the guy on the side of the road, but I didn't think he wanted me to touch an unclean thing. I mean, what if he was a Samaritan or something? What you did or didn't do for the least of these, my brothers, says Jesus, you did or didn't do to me. We listen to all of this, and eventually we throw up our hands, and we say, God, only you can love like that. And he says, now you're catching on. I want you to love with my love. The Greeks had four words for love. The first one is phileo. That's where we get the word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It's also where we get the word phileo fish. Just kidding. It's when you love because you have something in common. Jerry Seinfeld has this great line where he says, remember in kindergarten how easy it was to make friends? You find one thing in common. You like cherry soda? I like cherry soda. We're going to be friends forever. Phileo. The second kind of love is eros. Oh, this is crazy love. Love without reason. The love of passion. Love between lovers. It's the love that says, I can't help but fall for you. When your heart's thumping out of your chest and you drool because you can't think of anything to say. That's Eros kind of love. Storge is the third kind of love. This refers to natural affection that a parent might have for a child. But it's not just that. Some of you who love your pets, you'll understand. Some of the ancient Romans would use this word to refer to an owner and their dog. It's the kind of love that says, I I have a need for you. And then we have agape. This is a rare word. I know the, it's a Greek word, but it's a rare concept even in the Old Testament. In fact, it's a rare word anywhere before Christ. And there really isn't a great magisterial definition of agape. It's more, the power's more in how it's used. It's the love you show to a wounded soldier when he comes back home from the battlefield. It's when you sense you should give honor to whom honor is due, and so you pay a tribute. Not much feeling tied to that word, because it's not seated in the emotions. Agape is seated in the will. Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's the word I want to use. And I'll start by talking about what I've done for you. For God so loved the world. That he gave his son. What do you think it means that God loved the world? 
Do you think we're talking about deep-seated feelings? I mean, it's not because we had a lot in common. Do you really think that that describes the cosmos? It's not a phileo kind of love. It's not an eros, not even a storge kind of love. I mean, in the Old Testament, God seems to say, if, if I'm looking for feelings towards my people, sometimes they're hard to find. When God pulls his people out of Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness, God says a lot of things to them. But the nicest thing he says about them is you're a stubborn and a stiff-necked people. God says, no, only I deserve the kind of tribute that I'm giving to you. And now I want you to give to others the love that I give to you. There is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends, and you are my friends. Now, someone's going to be quick to say, well, yes, if you do everything he tells you. Well, isn't that how the verse ends? It is. But I'm remembering a, a guy named Judas who sold out his Lord for 30 pieces of silver and betrayed him with a kiss. And do you remember what Jesus calls him? Friend. Yes, I'm dying for you too. When he was on the cross and we were hurling insults at him, your rescuer cries out to his father to forgive them. Why would he talk this way? Because we're supposed to imagine that we should treat each other as if the image of God is in them. To love when we don't feel like it. To love when others don't act like it. To love those who've done nothing to deserve it. There are not enough feelings in the world for us to do that kind of love. The motivation can't come from within us. We don't have it. It can't come from within them. Our enemies are not inviting us to love them. He chooses a word that's based on desert other than the tribute owed to God. Agape love is entirely other-centered. It's about giving to others without expecting anything, anything in return. Agape love is loving in a way that's about the other, other-centered rather than what I can get out of the relationship. There is no what's in it for me involved in this. It's a love that asks only one question. What will this mean for you? You can look inward and tell if you're showing agape love. Just read your heart. Because the opposite of this kind of love is fear. John says perfect love casts out fear. And that those who fear have not been made perfect in love. Fear of what? Well, fear of getting hurt. When we are afraid of getting hurt, we build walls of self-protection. We don't love people. We use people to get what we want. And if we're not careful, we don't just use people. We abuse people to protect ourselves. C.S. Lewis saw that opening up to real agape love is to open yourself up to a great deal of possible hurt. There are no walls, no defense mechanisms. Love always protects the other, but love doesn't always protect yourself. Love means I die to myself to protect you. Lewis writes this, there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. To love anything, your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. 
Wrap it carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or the coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It won't be broken. It'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Tim Keller offers something very insightful here. He says that agape love has a counterfeit. That's a fake version that can easily be mistaken for the real thing. And that's called selfish affection. And that's where we show affection, not because of how it affects them, but because of the way they make you feel about yourself. Psychology books and therapy books will talk about the rescuer syndrome, where you seek out someone with deep emotional needs, maybe even with severe trauma, and others see you with them and say, wow, that person is really selfless and giving. But in reality, you're really rescuing yourself. And this is where... A person is attracted not to another person, but how that person's love makes you feel about yourself. But agape love isn't like this at all. It's not self-regarding. First Corinthians tells us it's not proud. That means there's no pride in it at all. It's not about you, what you get from it, or even how it makes you feel. It's entirely about them. And that's why Paul calls this fruit of the Spirit. This is not a natural kind of love that could be ginned up by willpower. There are many ways to be kind and sweet without the Holy Spirit. I mean, when love involves our own interest, we naturally become self-preserving people. We need friends, so we act friendly. Business models say honesty really is the best policy. You know why? It's good for business. So we are honest. But the cross, the cross says self-interest is not part of this. Agape love, the love that the Spirit produces within people who have denied themselves, taken up the cross, and chosen to follow Christ, is a supernatural self-forgetfulness based in knowing how loved you are by God. It flows from the inside out. And this is where the challenge becomes the strongest. We're accustomed to think of loving God because at the end of the road, there's a heaven waiting us. But would you love him even if there wasn't? I only ask because in the Old Testament, there is very little talk about any afterlife. And in the Gospel of Mark, which may have been the first of the four Gospels written, there's really only about one chapter that talks about rewards after this life. The earliest preaching about Jesus and the call of the kingdom was not about what you get in return, but what God gets out of the deal. Oh, it takes complete self-denial. Complete and total other-centeredness to do that. That's an out-of-this-world kind of love. And that's how you know it's of the Spirit. 
Listen to the prayer as we close of Francis Javier, written down in the 1400s. My God, I love thee, not because I hope for heaven thereby, nor yet because to love thee, uh, to love thee not, are lost eternally. Thou, O my Jesus, thou didst me upon the cross embrace. For me didst bear the nails and spear and manifold disgrace. And griefs and torments numberless and sweat of agony, even death itself, and all for one who was thine enemy. Then why, O blessed Jesus Christ, should I not love thee well? Not for the hope of winning heaven or of escaping hell. Not with the hope of gaining aught, nor seeking a reward, but as thyself has loved me, O ever-loving Lord. Even so I love thee, and will love, and in thy praise will sing, solely because thou art my God and my eternal King. Love God like that, and loving your fellow Christian, or loving your neighbor, or even loving your enemy becomes a piece of cake. Only God can produce a love like that. And a love like that can only bring glory to God. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.